Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this, of course, is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and yes, whoever. Uh, before we begin, some Facebook shoutouts. I'd like to thank Cynthia Santos, Joey Joey McLeese, Adam Fitzgerald Bellman, Michelle Makar, or Makar, sorry if I'm butchering your name, M-A-K-A-R, Michael Seaman, Joe Sky Cosby, Ronald Aquino, Daniel Noonan, Mike Montague, Donna Brunaccini. Not sure if I may have shouted out some of these names in the past, but hey, never hurts to thank someone twice. So thanks everyone for liking the Facebook page. Much appreciated. And so this is the second episode of the month, which means I'll be going with the news story format. Uh, So this is where I'd normally dig into the so-called religious news story segment, but I might start with a quick, famous last words, a follow-up to the last episode I released in which I discussed Dilbert creator Scott Adams's uh, satanic coincidences shtick. And hopefully this will be the last time I talk about Scott Adams on the show. I'm not even sure why I'm talking about him again now. Maybe I'm in the grip of his oft-touted persuasion skills. But yeah, there were a couple of things concerning Adams that I wanted to touch on. I was just going to reflect on the general weirdness of the last episode and then quickly go over a story I discovered while looking for pictures of Adams for the YouTube version of the show. So when I first discovered that satanic coincidences story on Hemant Mehta's friendly atheist Patheos channel... It seemed like such a great story to cover on the show, but the more I watched the video over the course of putting together the last two episodes, the more I was like, why am I even covering this? It just seemed like some stupid troll thing or dry or offbeat attempt at humor. I think even as I was editing the last episode, I was like, what a strange thing to dedicate a whole show to, uh, wasting time and brain power on trying to speculate why Scott Adams did a Biden is satanic bit. I did entertain the idea, even if it was meant as satire, that at least in part he may have also been trying to plant a seed in the heads of the more religious and conspiracy theory-minded Trumpers out there. But I'm not even sure if I buy that anymore. The more you listen to or watch it, the more it seems like satire. There's certain tells, like when he pauses and pretends he can't think of anyone else who lives underground other than Satan and Joe Biden. One of his followers actually commented on the YouTube version of the last episode, and she writes... He has actually explained why he created this false story. I'm sure he appreciates your participation. So maybe he does a follow-up in one of his subsequent episodes where he explains what it's all about. But I honestly don't think I care enough to go hunting for it on his YouTube channel. But yeah, the follower, maybe I'm reading too much into it and taking it too personally, but the follower makes it sound like it was some big-brained Svengali trap and I walked right into it, you know? I don't have the brain power to keep up with these master persuaders. Scott Adams and Donald Trump playing 4D chess, man. Uh, but it's uh, it's funny, though. I was watching one of Trump's recent rallies, and uh, it's September 10th as I record this. And he is a skilled BS artist, persuader or choose your term. I think part of the reason why he holds so many rallies, other than the fact that I think he probably feeds off of the adulation, is that they help him maintain a kind of Teflon reputation with his base. Doesn't matter what dirt's been uncovered on him or how bad or how accurate the latest allegations against him are, he can just jump off the plane, spin his own self-congratulatory bullshit narrative full of bogus claims and factual inaccuracies to an adoring crowd, and the news of the day is eclipsed. They and Trump supporters watching at home walk away thinking of how bad Sleepy Joe would be for the country instead of focusing on the fact that he, Trump, is on tape admitting he downplayed coronavirus even though he knew early on just how bad it was and how his brazen disdain or disrespect for the troops had been vetted or confirmed by multiple sources, including Fox News. And uh, when I hear people react with incredulity or disbelief at the thought of Trump speaking callously about fallen troops and veterans maimed, you know, in the line of service, 
Uh, if you haven't been keeping up with the news, a story broke about Trump calling fallen soldiers suckers and losers and asking John Kelly at the time, the director of Homeland Security, while standing at Kelly's son's grave, it was during a scheduled visit to uh, Arlington Cemetery, you know, turning to Kelly, the father of the man whose grave they're standing at and asking, I don't get it. What's in it for them? So when people act surprised or taken back by these allegations, I'm like, really? Really? What's the thing I always cite on this show is one of the things that first made me realize that he's a shit person. When he said of John McCain, a former POW, I prefer people who weren't captured. Don't believe me. Pause the show and go find the video on YouTube. Because I don't like losers. Frank, let me get to it. He hit me. He's not a war hero. He's a war hero. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. And just for the sake of transparency and clarity, when I mentioned Fox News confirming Donald Trump's um, disparaging statements about the troops or, or, you know, confirming those allegations, I was specifically talking about Jennifer Griffin. She's not one of their right-wing pundits or talking heads, you know. She's one of the actual professional journalists they keep around, like Chris Wallace as well. But to get back to Trump and his supposed persuasion skills, I do have to admit that in a sense, he does seem to have some impressive persuasion skills. You know, I don't think you have to belong to a certain political party to have respect and reverence for the troops or to be patriotic. But it has always seemed to me that the right seem to act like they have a monopoly on you know, respect for the military and patriotism. Uh, most people on the right you know, claim to feel very strongly about the troops. The idea that someone would insult or disrespect them, especially fallen troops, it's considered beyond the pale, un-American. But Trump just doesn't seem to matter. The Trump train just keeps on going. And that's why when people you know, start acting like this leaked Bob Woodward tape that shows Trump uh, admitting how serious COVID-19 was early on, you know, like it's some kind of bombshell that's going to ruin him, uh, ruin him. I can talk. I'm like, nah, you know, no way. His base is going to, isn't going to give a crap. If anything, they'll just spin it in his favor. He downplayed it for us. He was being a good leader and want to prevent a panic. You know, uh, I don't think there's a scandal this guy can't recover from. And it's funny, in that interview he did with Sam Harris, Scott Adams tries to pull a gutcha when Sam calls Trump a con man and says something like, wait, if you're calling him a con man, that's just another term for persuader, and you're admitting he's skilled or effective or whatever, you know? And I'm thinking, wait, isn't the goal of most con men not to be found out so they can continue the con? If at least half the country recognizes he's full of shit and you can't trust anything that comes out of his mouth, that's a pretty shitty con man. And I disagree that con man and persuader are, you know, synonymous. Being an effective con man is, I guess, a, a form of persuasion, to be fair. But I also think, contrary to what Scott Adams thinks, you know, that you can also persuade people with truth, sincerity, and by appealing to the better angels of human nature, which is the opposite of what I think Trump does. I think Trump appeals to the darker aspects of human nature. Uh, fear, xenophobia, that kind of thing. But as far as I stand, you know, with this uh, impending election, uh, I think, what, it's probably less than 60 days now. Uh, as cringy as the phrase is, I guess I'm riding with Biden, uh, as they say, or at least what's left of him. Uh, but, you know, I'm under no illusions. He's far from the ideal candidate. And even Biden in his prime was famously gaff prone, known for, you know, verbally stumbling, repeatedly putting his foot in his mouth. And now, given his advanced age, I, I don't know, man. He's been doing all right lately and his messaging has been pretty good. But you can almost feel the mental strain, you know, like he's constantly trying to hold it together and on the verge of losing focus.
If they do have debates, well, I have no idea what's what they're going to be like. If Biden can't keep mentally sharp, it could get really ugly. If he can keep his shit together, there's plenty of ammunition to use against Trump. Uh, a sharp, focused opponent could hammer Trump into the ground with just the stuff from the past week alone. The comments about the troops and his taped admission about his handling of COVID. But once again, who the hell knows what version of Biden will get if there are debates. I think Biden is still leading in the polls, but I believe they're pretty much tied in Florida, at least at the time you know that I'm recording this. And who knows how things will shape up. I hope it doesn't happen, but unfortunately, I still think Trump could win. We shall see. But damn, what a digression. And this isn't even the politics section. Uh, if you're not familiar, most of you probably are familiar, Scott Adams is a supporter of Trump in a sense. He's claimed that he just admires Trump's unprecedented persuasion skills, but he sure seems to support him as well. Take that unscripted episode I recently published where I react to his appearance on Sam Harris's podcast. Whenever Sam criticizes Trump, Scott Adams jumps right in and defends him. And before I move on to that story I came across regarding Scott Adams, I'll actually pause to try to say some nice things about him. While researching him for the show, I came across his official Dilbert page, and I was pleasantly surprised by how un or apolitical it was. For some reason, probably because he always seems to be touting Trump, I thought that, you know, his uh, opinion of Trump might bleed into his comics. But his recent Dilbert strip seemed to be pretty tame or apolitical. He even depicts his characters as wearing masks and being mindful of uh, the virus. So even though I've never really, you know, Doug Dilbert, I thought that was a nice break from all the stressful political division and bickering uh, we've all been having to endure of late. And then I rewatched his David Pakman appearance, and I was tempted to refer to it as a debate because, as is with his appearance on Sam's podcast, it quickly seemed to devolve into a debate. But at the beginning, he said some stuff that I found refreshing as a left-leaning person myself. He's often claimed to be left of Bernie Sanders. I think some people have taken that to be hyperbole and that he's actually more of a libertarian. But he did say at the beginning of his appearance on Pac-Man uh, that depending on how they're implemented or funded, he's actually for a UBI and medical care or coverage for everyone, as am I. He even admitted that with Trump, there are certain costs, not just financially speaking. And he mentioned the effect Trump has had on race relations and how he, Adams, had, at the time of the interview, had even been working with local representatives of BLM. So yeah, that was kind of nice to hear. But of course, after that, it all devolved into touting Trump as a master persuader and kind of engaging in what seemed to me to be all sorts of mental gymnastics to defend the man. And I will also say that, you know, I've been drawing since a little kid, went to school for graphic design. He's a cartoonist. Um, there's probably a lot of areas where we would agree regarding religion. So I'm trying to be fair and not just paint him as being all bad because uh, how frustrated I am with him regarding, you know, his, his takes on certain things, uh, especially Donald Trump. Uh, but now after kind of extending that olive branch, uh, maybe in a way, you know, I'm about to uh, snatch it right back. Because uh, here's that story I stumbled across while working on the show. And, and, you know, like I was saying, I feel kind of bad now, like I'm undoing the nice things I just said about him. But still, I guess, hey, I'm going to cover it anyway. So, <laughs> so while I was looking for pics of Adams for the YouTube version of the show... I see this thumbnail with a kind of unflattering picture of him with a tweet behind him. And, you know, I try to be a nice guy and not go low, uh, but I can be pretty dark and inappropriate or irreverent. And I was so put off or frustrated with Adams at the time I was putting my notes together that I found myself jotting down nasty notes like, uh, 
Maybe mention that he looks like an overconfident Frank Perdue or a child with progeria. Uh, that is awful shit. That is awful. I don't know. I'm a man divided against himself. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, don't go there, man. Don't go there. But I guess I just did. So anyway, the image led to a news story, and it had to do with that garlic festival shooting last year. There's a, you know, garlic festival shooting last year. There's a sentence you don't hear often. I know, uh, you know, a mass shooting. I shouldn't be joking around. But I remember when that story broke, I was like, garlic festival? But anyway, so I guess it had seemed that he was trying to capitalize on the shooting by kind of advertising this new app. Um, so this is from the Daily Beast, but I did a search and it appeared that the story had been widely covered at the time. But this is just a little over a year ago, not by much, July 29th of 2019, and it's entitled Dilbert creator Scott Adams tries to sell interviews with Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting survivors. After the mass shooting, he advertised his new app that would somehow let people set a price for their stories and give him a 20% cut. And here's the tweet. If you were a witness to the hashtag Gilroy Garlic Festival shooting, please sign on to Interface by Wenhub, free app, and you can set your price to take calls. Use keyword Gilroy. As police in Gilroy, California processed the crime scene at the mass shooting at the Gilroy Garlic Festival on Sunday that left three people dead, Dilbert comic strip creator Scott Adams decided to make some money off the tragedy. In a message to his more than 300,000 Twitter followers, Adams urged any Gilroy shooting witnesses to make an account on an app he co-founded that allows experts to expert that allows experts to make money by discussing issues over video calls. By signing up for the app, quote unquote, interface by Wenhub, Adams claimed witnesses could set your price and make money by selling interviews about the mass murder. Well, Adams' company took a 20% cut. And this is funny because I remember Frank Luntz from back when I used to bounce around between the different cable news networks. You know, I'd watch MSNBC, I'd watch Fox, I'd watch CNN, and I couldn't stand uh, Frank Luntz. But this is interesting. Uh, he, he takes a, a shot at Adams. Adams soon faced an online backlash with Republican pollster Frank Luntz and others accusing Adams, who had rebranded himself as pro-Trump as a, yeah, as pro-Trump internet personality. Is, is that supposed to be a pro-Trump internet personality? Anyway, of using the shooting to promote his app. So here's a tweet from Frank Luntz. You're really using an in-progress mass shooting to promote your app, Scott? No actual Gilroy survivors appear to have taken Adams up on his offer. As of this writing, the only avowed quote-unquote expert for the search term quote-unquote Gilroy available on the site appears to be a troll who lists his other topics as quote-unquote Scott Adams being vile and quote-unquote journalism basics. He's willing to talk about any of those issues for $50 an hour. During a Periscope live stream that Adams posted Monday, he announced that his cut of any payments would have been 20% but claimed that he expected that most witnesses using the Wenhub app would set the price at zero, with his potential earnings only in the 5 to $10 range. That appears to contradict Adam's earlier tweet, in which he encouraged shooting survivors to quote-unquote set your price. So take that story for whatever it's worth. Uh, I won't shy away from the fact. I'll admit that just reading that story on the show, you know, I experienced a, a good deal of schadenfreude. Uh, it was kind of a nice pressure valve release after having to subject myself to uh, what I find to be Scott Adams's uh, bizarre persuasion-centered worldview. And it's a worldview that I find, as he laid it out, in that interview with Sam, to be uh, unsettlingly amoral. And I think Sam had the same reaction. And that reminds me of this article I found from The Atlantic, and it's dated back to 2017, uh, you know, at the time that interview took place. 
It's entitled Scott Adams's Nihilistic Defense of Donald Trump. The cartoonist defended the president in a podcast debate with Sam Harris. The portrait he painted of Trump supporters was not flattering. And so there's no way I'm going to read the whole article for the sake of both you and I. Uh, so, but I'll read a little bit of the beginning and then uh, the, a little bit of the conclusion. So it starts off, Sam Harris, the atheist philosopher and neuroscientist, has recently been using his popular Waking Up podcast, which of course is now making sense, to discuss Donald Trump, whom he abhors, with an ideologically diverse series of guests, all of whom believe that the president is a vile huckster. This began to wear on some of his listeners. Wasn't Harris always warning against echo chambers? Didn't he believe in rigorous debate with a position's strongest proponents? At their urging, he extended an invitation to a person that many of those listeners regard as President Trump's most formidable defender, Scott Adams, the creator of the cartoon Dilbert, who believes that Trump is quote-unquote a master persuader. Their conversation was posted online late last month. It is one of the most peculiar debates about a president I've ever encountered, and it left me marveling that parts of Trump's base think well of Adams when his views imply such negative things about them. And by that, I think he means in short, and uh, actually it's, it probably makes them look bad no matter which way you slice it. Either they know Trump's lying all the time, and they're all right with it. They're all right with facts taking a backseat as long as Trump is taking the country in the direction that they want it to go in. Or, you know, they're gullible and they're not able to see that he's lying. You know what I mean? But I'll read the uh, final couple of paragraphs. Now, personally, I don't believe that Trump is a master persuader. I think he's a guy who started out with unusual amounts of money, name recognition, and media coverage. Three hugely important factors for a Paul. Ran against an unusually disliked opponent and still managed to lose the popular vote by a margin of almost three million. But whether or not Trump is a master persuader is really beside my point here. And so that paragraph there pretty much beautifully sums up my own view of Trump and how he managed to attain the presidency. But it continues, My point is that Harris had been using his podcast to discuss Trump with an ideologically diverse series of anti-Trump guests who believe the president is a vile huckster. And then when he agreed to host the pro-Trump guest, who is pro-Trump listeners flagged as Trump's most formidable defender, that guest essentially conceded that Trump has done all sorts of vile things and rose to power via lies but that it's all for the best because he has an incentive to do a really good job. To accept all that would be to cede any grounds for objecting to future politicians who behave immorally, inject cruel policy proposals into the national debate, and lie to get elected. If Adams truly is the most formidable defender of the Trump presidency, then the best defense of the president is grounded in corrosive moral nihilism. Well said, and I pretty much concur. And so uh, it's like a trip in the uh, way back machine today. So I covered a story from 2019 and then one from 2017. But hey, I'm kind of catching up because as I said, Scott Adams was barely on my radar until I discovered that Patheos article. And hopefully this will be the last time I ever, you know, discuss him on the show. I'm not saying that because I think he's, you know, a, a completely bad guy, rotten to the core or anything. It's just, um, I find just covering this shit to be stressful and I'd rather not talk about him again, you know? Okay, but finally, let's move on to a religious news story. So this is also from the Friendly Atheist and stated uh, September 9th. Ukrainian Orthodox Church leader who blamed COVID on gay marriage now has COVID. And this is by Hemant Mehta himself. And look at this guy's headgear. Absolutely fabulous. Back in March, Patriarch Filaret of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church blamed the pandemic on gay marriage. He said in a TV interview that the virus was, quote-unquote, God's punishment for the sins of men, the sinfulness of humanity. I mean, same-sex marriage. 
Someone that ignorant will likely ignore science-based precautions to avoid the virus, of course. And wouldn't you know it, the 91-year-old Philaret has now come down with the disease. Maybe he has a gay husband somewhere he doesn't know about. Philaret's church, which is <laughs> said to have more than 15 million followers among Ukraine's 42 million, pop 42 million population, confirmed the COVID-19 diagnosis in a Facebook post. <clears throat> I was about to make a joke about a 91-year-old on Facebook, but uh, who knows? But most likely as someone else do, you know, handling his social media. We informed that during planned testing, His Holiness Patriarch Filaret of Kiev in all Ross, Ukraine, tested positive for COVID-19, the statement said. Now His Holiness Bishop is undergoing treatment at a hospital. Times like this, I wish I believed in karma. In any case, because I'm not a monster, I hope he recovers. And then maybe he can finally issue an apology for spewing bigoted bullshit based on his religious beliefs. The less he talks, the better off everyone is. Hey, see, Hemet Mehta swears. Does that mean it's all right for me to swear? <laughs> I'm still trying to navigate those waters. I know some listeners are bothered by it, other ones not so much. Okay, so this next story was supposed to be the political segment. It's just this quick little fun thing. So a lot of you are probably familiar with Tim Pool. I think he's a journalist of sorts, always wears a beanie. And so Tim Stick, or Selling Point, has always been, or at least used to be, that he's a liberal who calls out political correctness and cancel culture on the left, you know? And he's just kind of gotten so progressively, you know, more and more anti-left that he's basically indistinguishable from a conservative at this point. And this is the kind of crap he ladles out now. So check this out. You go to the RNC, and what do you typically see? The dudes are all tall, chiseled, rugged, you know. The women are all slim and busty and attractive. You go to the DNC, and what do you see? The guys are all short, frumpy, overweight, and unattractive. And the women are overweight as well. And I was, I was, I was reading something about why that is. And the general idea that I've come up with, because I was reading something about the trend being true. Generally, at, you know, the Republicans have a, have a skew slightly towards more attractive. And so I harvested that clip from uh, another YouTuber. So I didn't get to hear what his, what his grand thesis is on why uh, conservatives are supposedly more attractive. Uh, but we, but you know, weird. What a weird take uh, by Tim. Uh, I almost called him Tim Pig, Tim Pool. So although I lean left, I don't affiliate myself with either party. Although in the spirit of intellectual honesty, I'm still obviously going to have more in common with, uh, you know, the Democratic Party. Uh, but aren't both parties mostly made up of old frumpy career politicians? Uh, don't most politicians look like something that crawled out of a mummy exhibit at the uh, British Museum? Uh, but where did this fever dream that the right is represented by bodybuilders and bikini models come from? Uh, I mean... Have you seen Trump rallies? They look like uh, a people of Walmart convention. It's a stupid game to be playing, but if you want to play it, uh, you know, the left has Obama, Gavin Newsom, AOC, etc., you know? Just Tim trying to keep the grift going, I imagine. Uh, anyway, so on to the science and or history section. So we have three animal-related stories today, but only two of them are technically uh, science stories. Um, the third one, I didn't know what other segment to put it in. So anyway, um, first up, we have a story about printed meat. Yes, 3D printed steaks. And so if you're a listener and you think me talking about animals and whether or not we should be eating them is a new thing, uh, no. I might go long stretches without bringing it up, but I've been sharing my thoughts on that kind of thing periodically almost since the beginning. Years ago, before I think I had even heard of the word vegan, I used to talk about how I thought one of the the next big moral questions we would have to face as a society or a species is whether or not we should continue using other living creatures, sentient animals, as food. And there's been buzz about so-called lab-grown meat for years now. And I think my attitude towards it is pretty much the same as it was back then. I think it's awesome. And I hope as many people as possible shift from factory farm meat to plant-based or lab-grown substitutes. The less animals, you know, that have to suffer and die for the sake of our taste buds, the better. 
But me, I'm an overgrown baby uh, when it comes to food. I hate trying new things. Um, so this was my attitude then. It's my attitude now. Please, everyone, eat lab-grown meat. It's awesome for the animals, and I hope it's the future. But me personally, the idea freaks me out, so I'll probably uh, go to my grave without trying it. That being said, I'm still going to do my best to stay away from meat and stick with non-meat food items that I really like. Uh, I think it was Vegan Gains who actually offered a really solid piece of advice on his channel before. It happened to be something I was already doing, but it resonated with me. He said, if you're wondering how to switch over to a vegan or more plant-based diet, start by focusing on eating the foods you already like and eat that don't contain animal products. And uh, he made the point that you'd be surprised how much of your diet is already plant-based. So I'm not proud of it, but I'm still a work in progress. I haven't completely phased animal products out of my diet, but I've made huge changes like switching from milk to almond milk, switching from regular ice cream to either, you know, popsicles made from real fruit or vegan ice cream. Here and there, if a family member or a friend offers me meat, I might eat it uh, once in a while. You know, I might sneak something that has dairy in it. Uh, but my shopping trips are pretty much vegan shopping trips, and I just pass by the, uh, the meat aisle. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff I already love to eat that's vegan. Uh, like, I love teriyaki noodles, pasta and red sauce, cereal with almond milk, whole wheat or multi-grain breads, peanut butter, fresh fruit, raisins. Uh, there's certain vegetables I really like, nuts, legumes, that kind of thing. So I feel like at least... I'm shopping in alignment with my conscience, and if someone offers me something that's not in alignment with my conscience, like I said, I might not be, I'm not proud of it, uh, and I know it's ethically problematic in the sense that by accepting animal products when offered to me, you could say it's a kind of tacit approval of eating animal products. Like I said, I'm a work in progress, and for me, even though ethical concerns, you know, concern for the animals is the prime motivator, Knowing that avoiding animal products is probably good for my health kind of helps me keep on the straight and narrow too. My last two or three physicals, my doctor has told me that I should be eating a more healthy diet and that my cholesterol is high, uh, enough that it causes her concern and she says I'm kind of on the edge. Any worse, and I could be entering medication territory and high cholesterol runs in my family. I'm not a saint. I, I've always had a sweet tooth, you know, and luckily there's some candy that I dig that happens to be vegan. I used to like a lot of gelatin candies, like gummy type of stuff, peeps. I know most people think they're gross. I have a close female friend who hates peeps, thinks they're like the most disgusting thing in the universe. I used to really like generic gelatin too, low calorie but fills you up. But unfortunately, gelatin, obviously, and a lot of those candies are gelatin based. And gelatin comes from boiling down and rendering animal parts, skin, bones, connective tissue, etc. Um, but I found out Swedish fish which I've always liked, are apparently vegan. There's cinnamon bears, which I love, which appear to be gelatin-free. And a lot of jelly beans are actually made using, like, fruit pectin. And this is a thing, like, um, hardcore vegans out there, you know, might find this kind of uh, disappointing, you know, me saying this. But on the hierarchy of sentience, and, and I do recognize that insects are living beings, you know, who shouldn't be treated cruelly and have a right to live. And in my, you know, in my day-to-day -day life, I will actually go out of my way to not kill an insect, sometimes even rescue them, like get them off the pavement, put them in the grass or on a tree. But um, I have to admit, as far as diet goes, I don't have the same concern or the same amount of a troubled conscience regarding insects as I do about, you know, mammals uh, vertebrate creatures with a more developed nervous system or whatever. So I know hardcore vegan or vegans in general, um, will try to avoid insect products as well. And it's, you know, it's, it's gross, but there are sometimes insect products used in candies, especially things like jelly beans and that type of stuff. Like certain insect derivatives are used to, uh, kind of create the glaze that gives 
candies like jelly beans that kind of shine on them. And also honey is used in a lot of candy. And I do realize that insects, including bees, have a right to live and they shouldn't be treated cruelly or killed just for taste pleasure. But at the same time, you know, like I said, I'm a work in progress, one moral hurdle at a time. Uh, I'm a lot less bothered by the idea that there may be an insect product in what I eat than that something like a cow or a pig or a sheep or a chicken may have been, you know, lived in absolute horror and squalor and beaten and abused and terrified and slaughtered, you know, that bothers me a lot more than the idea that something I'm eating, that like my, my oat cereal might have some honey in it. I'll probably catch shit for saying that, but you know, hopefully someday, maybe I'll, I'll phase all that out too, but I'm still, I'm still finding my way, brothers and sisters. But so here's the story, and it's from Business Insider, and it's dated August 31st. Alternative meat startup is hoping a 3D-printed steak can upend the meat industry. So let's see. It may look like Play-Doh, but it's actually a 3D-printed steak. It's kind of funny because... It almost looks like something you might see in Minecraft or something because it looks like a real steak, but it almost looks like it's rendered in pixels or something. Um, it's made by the Israeli alternative meat startup, Redefine Meat, and the technology behind it is one of many contenders in today's sizzling hot international race to capitalize on, growing faux, on the growing faux meat market. Redefined meat isn't focusing on alternatives to ground beef or sausages, but whole-cut steaks in an area of the market that has yet to hit the mainstream. There is an amazing industry of alternative meat that is focused on minced meat, and actually the meat industry is driven by the whole muscle cuts. CEO, looks like Escher Ben Shitreet. I don't know, told Reuters, steaks, roast, slow cooking, grilling, everything that animal can do, we want to do the same or even better. So I think that's really cool that, you know, these big businesses are kind of telling us that there's a really high demand for this stuff to the point where they're taking it very seriously. And there's a race to create um, meat alternatives. Um, and I think, you know, conv convincing meat alternatives at that. And I don't want to seem too overly idealistic, but I do hope that someday we do reach that kind of Star Trek-esque utopia. And I can almost imagine, like before, I remember when I was a kid watching Star Trek The Next Generation, and I would see them use the replicator. I used to think it seemed so far-fetched, it was hard to believe that something like that would ever exist. But already, think what we're doing with 3D printing, and now they're printing meat. So there really could be a day in the future where every home has a replicator and you can pretty much just kind of print out or materialize whatever type of food it is you like. Like for me, things I miss like sausage, pizza, steak, you know, the steak with the juices running into rice pilaf or, you know, there might come a day where without an animal having to die, where technology we all have in our homes you can make like the meal that you are craving the most you know just using some kind of replicator or something i hope we reach that day you know and as i stated at the beginning of this segment there were a couple of other stories involving animals that i was going to do as well I was going to cover a story about how apparently there's so many drug companies and research institutes using monkeys for testing in the search for a COVID vaccine that there's actually a monkey shortage in the wild now. Uh, and then I was going to cover a story about a hunter who was gored to death by a pissed off elk he had shot the day before. Um... But I start to feel a bit self-conscious when I spend too much time on veganism because even though I have a couple of longtime listeners who I also consider friends who are vegan and have come out and supported my efforts to try to shift over to being plant-based, uh, I know a lot of you probably come here for the atheist and secular content, maybe the little documentaries I do, and you might feel like you're being preached to. Um, you know, if I spend too much time on veganism and animal ethics, uh, it's kind of a balancing act. 
Um, so, you know, I try to pepper that stuff in and not turn away from it because I think it, it is important. Um, but I try to cover it in moderation. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It can be kind of nerve, and I experience this with you know when I'm covering politics and everything else on the show. That can be kind of nerve wracking to try to stay true to yourself, but not offend a certain segment of your audience at the same time. You know, on on either side of the divide. Uh, all I can do, I think, the most important thing is to be true to myself, and then just try to do my best to feel my way through. You know, it's it's. Uh, it's tough sometimes. But yeah, I will say, even though I think hunting is incrementally better than the hell on earth that is factory farming, uh, still, uh, you know, when you're an animal lover, which I think most people are in, in a way, you know, it's hard to avoid a little schadenfreude or a perverse chuckle when you encounter one of the store, one of these stories about an animal giving a hunter uh, their comeuppance, you know. The same time, I feel kind of bad, you know, the hunter is also probably someone's dad or whatever, but I'm glad the elk got to keep his life. Uh, you know, dude won head-to-head -head with nature, and nature won. Um, maybe I'll quickly just, so you don't think that I'm pulling that monkey story out of thin air, you know, because it sounds kind of crazy. And I may have been incorrect. I think I said that it was the demand was creating a monkey shortage in the wild. Maybe it is. Maybe they're harder to find. I don't know, but it could be um, a shortage regarding the existing supply of research monkeys worldwide or whatever. Um, yeah, it's USA Today. COVID vaccine treatment trials create monkey shortage. The Atlantic COVID-19 vaccine research is facing a monkey shortage. So yeah, New York Daily News, Live Science, WebMD, Fox News, The Times UK, CBS News, monkey shortage, monkey shortage, monkey shortage. Everyone's saying there's a monkey shortage. Um, see what Live Science has to say. U.S. faces monkey shortage for COVID-19 research. COVID-19 vaccines and treatments typically get tested in monkeys before being given to humans, but now those primates are in short supply, the Atlantic reported. Prior to the pandemic, the U.S. was already approaching a potential monkey shortage. Drink every time I say monkey shortage. According to a 2018 report from the National Institute of Health, the authors of the report proposed establishing a quote-unquote strategic monkey reserve in order to meet future demand and to provide a buffer in case of unpredictable disease outbreaks, according to The Atlantic. No reserve was ever established when COVID-19 emerged in late 2019, the demand for monkeys skyrocketed worldwide. So I know on face value, you know, when you first hear it, you kind of chuckle because it's such a strange, you know, headline or whatever. And the word monkey is funny, but it is, it's heartbreaking and disturbing. It's like I said, you know, I already got into animal ethics and veganism and stuff. So I'm trying to be mindful of, you know, my audience as a whole, um, and so I could probably do a whole episode on anim on animal testing and whether it's worth it or not, whether um, you know it's worth the suffering that we put animals through, how effective it is or isn't, you know. So I, I don't want to go off on hour-long digression on animal testing. You guys know I love animals. You can probably imagine how this story makes me feel, especially given how um, how advanced you know, primates are, uh, these are creatures in the same, basically the same zoological category as us. Uh, we're also primates. Um, and you just, you know, you can look at the face of a monkey who's in a cage in some laboratory and it's heartbreaking. You know, you can see the, uh, the sadness and the awareness and, and, you know, the sentience in their eyes. Um, so when you, when you stop the thing, but this is really, uh, it's a depressing and disturbing story. Uh, so I won't stay too long on it, you know, but holy crap, man, 21st century, uh, we have all this high tech stuff and monkey shortage. We're still using other living beings as kind of diagnostic tools, you know what I mean? I don't know. But on that depressing note, I guess now it's time for the pop culture segment. Actually, I decided that I don't like the term pop culture because... 
you know, a lot of the stuff that I bring up isn't, you know, mainstream, at least not currently. Being a Gen Xer, some of the stuff that I want to talk about, you know, culturally is like 20 or 30 years old or something. So I was going to change it to culture bin, B-I-N. Like, you know, a, a bin full of assorted cultural items. But then suddenly that I gave myself... Um, about of the douche chills with that name. And I thought uh, maybe I'll just call it the culture segment for now. But anyway, so first up, The Boys, that Amazon Prime show is back. The Boys, I absolutely loved the first season. And so um, if you're not aware of The Boys, most of you probably are if you, you know, if you watch TV at all or if you have Amazon Prime or you're keeping your finger on the pulse of uh, what's mainstream. So The Boys is a TV series on Amazon based on a comic book series or a graphic novel. I'm not sure. I haven't read it. I've seen some of the, uh, you know, the comparisons of what the characters look like in the original version compared to the actors in the TV version. And it's a really interesting plot. So in the, in the world of The Boys, superheroes exist with powers like Superman and Wonder Woman and Aquaman. But it's a it's a really kind of dark and dystopian take on superheroes. And in this world, you know, superheroes are they're not immune to being assholes and narcissistic and idiosyncratic or whatever. And so the big superheroes are kind of managed by this big corporation. They have a marketing team and everything. And so ostensibly you know on the surface they seem like these really cherry kind of perfect you know moral moral beacons or whatever but behind the scenes awful people and it's uh, all the scarier because they're awful people with superhuman powers so for instance the kind of main villain of the uh, series uh, is homelander so he's like the boy's answer or version of superman he can fly he has uh, heat vision superhuman strength but his costume is kind of very kind of jingoistic like the american flag and the the bald ego, e bald ego, the bald eagle theme is tied into, you know, incorporated into his costume. And it's almost reminiscent of Nazi propaganda posters that, you know, display the image of the perfect Aryan male, uh, a really kind of masculine, chiseled, good looking dude with uh, kind of slick back blonde hair or whatever. Um, but yeah, he's a, so he's all smiles and waves and whatnot on, on the surface, but behind the scenes, just a narcissistic monster, a kind of psychopath, you know what I mean? Um, and so uh, many of the really gory scenes in, in the show involve him. Like we, we get, as I said, when I kind of reviewed the first season, we get to see what like Superman's heat or laser vision would actually do to a human head, that kind of thing. So yeah, as a horror movie fan, as a comic book movie fan, um, as a fan of comedy, it kind of incorporates all those aspects. It does a, a good job of balancing uh, drama and comedy. Uh, at times, it's so gory and kind of hyper-violent that if you like horror movies, you might like it. And at the same time, uh, because it's you know focused on superheroes, it kind of has that uh, comic book movie feel. Um, just a great show, and I'm really liking this season too. But one thing that has really pissed off fans is that people, including myself, pay money you know, for the service of Amazon Prime. And usually with Amazon Prime, they release, you know, they'll release a whole series at once so you can binge watch it. Like Netflix, that kind of seems to be the prevailing or popular model, you know. But for some reason with The Boys, they released three episodes initially, and now it's going to be one episode every week after that. And I didn't like that. You know, I, I thought I'd be able to binge watch the whole series. And uh, fans are so pissed off about it that despite the fact that content-wise, it's been very well received. If you look at the reviews on Amazon, 
um, it's like 2.5 out of 5 stars because people are so pissed off about this um, this serialized format or whatever. Uh, so I don't know what the deal is with that. I don't know if Amazon will bother changing that at this point, you know, if complaining will do anything. Hopefully, at least, it will let them know that maybe they shouldn't, you know, choose this on uh, this unpopular release method for future series or whatever. And I know there's a lot of people who don't like spoilers, so... If you plan on watching The Boys, uh, if you're a fan of it and you just haven't got around to, you know, watching the most recent episode yet, you might want to block your ears or skip ahead. But there was one thing in the uh, one moment in the most recent episode that was so weird, I just felt like I had to talk about it. So you have the character Homelander. All right. And so if you saw last season of The Boys, you'll know that he killed a... Uh, a female character that he was obsessed with. And then all of a sudden in this season, we see that character back and we're wondering what's going on. He's like, uh, cause it's weird. Even though he's a grown man, he had this kind of boyish obsess obsession with this, uh, this corporate bigwig who kind of ran the marketing or whatever. And he saw her as almost like a mother figure, but was sexually taken with her. So it was like really, a kind of creepy dynamic and we see him again like lying in her lap and we're wondering what's going on is it a flashback and we find out that it's a uh it's another super kind of person a meta human or whatever uh who has like a doppelganger type of ability a shape-shifting ability so i think almost like a hooker he's forcing or paying this person to take the form of this woman he was obsessed with you know and uh it was just really funny because there was a moment where the guy loses control and he turns back into his normal form, which is this little schleppy type of guy, like a short, bald, heavy set guy. And uh, Homelander's all like freaked out. And uh, the, the guy turns back again into the woman and Homelander just looks really like uncomfortable and he's trying to lie back on her lap again. And then there's a thing where Homelander gets upset upset and he realizes he doesn't need her anymore or whatever right and so the guy tries to seduce homelander by taking the form of homelander so there's this really weird just really i don't know if it works dramatically but it's definitely so bizarre and over the top that will get people talking you know so in this person this little schleppy guy who can change shapes is shorter than Homelander. So, and I will say, I'll say this. Um, the guy who plays Homelander, I think he's an Australian actor, not Anthony, but Anthony Starr, I believe his name is. And I absolutely loved a series that he used to be in called Banshee. It was a great series, not the best series in the world. Like if, if Game of Thrones in its prime was a 10, I would say Banshee was a 7.5, maybe an 8. Not the greatest thing, but I loved watching it. And it was such an awesome plot. So Anthony Starr plays an ex-con on his first day out of prison. Um, he's wandering through this town called uh, Banshee, Pennsylvania, and it takes place in like Pennsylvania Dutch country so there's Amish characters and there's also Native American characters and stuff and on his first day out he witnesses a police sheriff get murdered in like a bar fight or something and so he takes the opportunity because it was the the sheriff's first day on the job and um he takes the opportunity to take the sheriff's badge and he takes on the persona uh, you know he um he passes himself off as the sheriff. And um, and that's very interesting because there's a couple of people in the town who know uh, Anthony Starr's character. I think the name of the character was Lucas Hood. They know him from before. So there's this tension where is he going to be found out? Are, are the people he knows going to rat on him? And at the same time, even though he's a criminal, he was like a like a jewel thief or something like that. He also has a moral compass. 
So at the same time, he's trying to fulfill his own selfish needs and he has his own agenda, but he also has a conscience. So he's also trying to do his best as a sheriff and at the same time not get caught. So there was a lot of constantly like this tension, you know, kind of baked in the cake of the plot. But I absolutely love that show. And there was, and this is Anthony Starr's second series where he his character ends up performing or nearly performs oral sex you know not to get too graphic so in banshee there was a flashback to when he's in prison and there's this like toughest guy in the prison like this giant jacked albino figure who kind of ran the prison you know and Anthony Starr, like he's a he's an in shape, rugged, rugged type of guy, but he does he's not like he doesn't look like a giant roided out monster. So he's fighting this guy, and the guy tries to make him give him head. And Anthony Starr's character bites the guy's you know what and rips it off. And uh, and then like beats the guy to death or whatever. Um and so in the boys this other character takes on the Homelander's shape, but it's like a shorter Homelander, and he's wearing a negligee, a negligee like a nighty. So you see Anthony Starr walking towards himself, but a short version of himself in lingerie, and he's trying to seduce himself, and he's like like fondling his own crotch and it's really weird and bizarre and I'm not sure in a good way kind of like a what the hell am I watching way and then he ends up killing the doppelganger who's taking his shape and I think they were trying to drive home a point about the character or give an insight into the character I think what they're trying to get across is that the homelander this egotistical narcissistic you know, person who can have anything he wants in the world just about, you know, inside there's a part of him that hates himself. You know what I mean? That actually lacks self-esteem. And that's supposed to be represented in the fact that we see him symbolically kill himself. But I'm not sure if it works. You're more just like, and the star just tried to blow himself and now he's dead on the floor wearing a nightie, you know? So it's like bizarre. And so I started watching another series that I'm really digging. And at first, I, I actually found the first episode for free on YouTube, strangely enough. And I guess it makes sense. I think I've seen other big cable companies do this too. Try to lure people in by offering free content. Um, yeah, so the name of the series is Raised by Wolves. And uh, I didn't know what to expect, and I didn't know if I'd take to it or not. And I read, like, the synopsis, so I knew it had something to do with androids or artificial life. And at first, I wasn't sure how I felt about the, um, the look of the androids. They seemed to be wearing these, like, silly helmets or whatever. Um, but I quickly took to the show... And I think at least the first two episodes were directed by Ridley Scott, the guy behind, uh, you know, the Aliens or Alien franchise. And I don't know if this is supposed to take place or not in that same universe, because like the androids in the Aliens movies, um, one of the aliens gets, uh, one of the androids rather, gets injured in this or damaged in this series and you see the same kind of weird you know the off-putting white blood uh run out of the android's nose so i'm wondering i'm like hmm is that just like a little tip of the hat an easter egg an homage or is this stuff supposed to take place within the same universe i don't know but anyway so i'm watching it and suddenly they mention atheists i'm like hmm my like ears perk up uh, once again, spoilers, but the plot is that there's these warring factions in the future. There's a religious faction that basically worships the ancient god uh, Mitra or Mithra or Mithras. Um, different versions of the name for the same god. Um, Mithra started out as a Persian deity, but became very uh, popular in the Greco-Roman, in, in the classical world. Um, 
And anyway, so somehow in the future, there's a futuristic fraction that worships this god. And so I think they kind of represent religious belief and whatnot. Then there's another fra uh, faction they're at war with who they simply refer to as atheists. So as they put it, atheists send these two androids in a spacecraft to seed human life elsewhere on another planet. And... um very strange. So you have like the this female android with the help of a male android, all sorts of tubes in her and stuff. They basically like brew, incubate human babies, you know, through her system or whatever by using organic material or whatnot. And so these two androids become the parents to these human children. And then there becomes this whole kind of thing where like the... um representatives of this Mithraic religion end up landing on the same planet where the androids are. So there's this conflict and tension, but a wild show. So obviously it's some kind of allegory for, you know, religious belief versus unbelief. And I don't know if either side is going to be portrayed as being better than the other, or if maybe the message might be that both sides are too rigid or something. You know, I don't know. We'll have to see. But kind of a, a cool series. I'm digging it. And then I'll, I'll mention one more show that I'm watching before we wrap things up. And I watched the first season last year on Amazon Prime. It's a show called Britannia. And it's funny because when I would see it listed, I would just see the name Britannia. So I thought maybe it's about you know, a period drama about the royal family or about colonial Britain or something. But it's actually, um, it's set in pre-Roman Britain. So uh, I guess what we would think of as being the kind of the Druidic period, that kind of mysterious period. And I feel like when I was watching it, I'm like, I wish I could tell how historic how historically accurate or inaccurate this is, but I don't know that much about pre-Roman Britain. Uh, I know vaguely that it was a, a Celtic land, and um, I think even among historians, it's still, things are kind of foggy, you know, it's a lot of speculation. But I think it, there probably are a boatload of historical inaccuracies, you know what I mean? Um, and I'm not even sure if the the kind of spiritual framework or the mythology that, that's encased in this show, if any of that is based at all on actual pre-Roman pagan British belief. I have no idea because I really don't know much about pre-Roman pagan British belief. I think even the Druids are considered to still be mysterious figures. We have a little bit, uh, we know a little bit about them from uh, Roman accounts, including that of Julius Caesar. I think we don't know how serious or how accurate those accounts, you know, we should take those accounts to be. But it's an interesting show and it's pretty wild. I would probably put it on par with, you know, like you remember the old Hercules and Xena shows? Even though those shows dealt with mythological figures, uh, still the world, uh, these mythological figures, the, the portrayal of them in the TV shows were set in, bore no resemblance to ancient Greece. You know, I mean, they were walking around, around wearing leather pants and kind of looked like a cross between barbarians and rock stars and uh, all sorts of artistic uh, liberties and poetic license was taken. And so my guess is it's something like that. Like, um, like I, I feel like the people behind the show just really let their imaginations go wild. You know what I mean? And my guess is, yeah, it's probably chock full of um, inaccuracies. But if you can kind of let that go and just enjoy it as a wild ride, as entertainment, it's a pretty fun show. And the guy who plays the kind of uh, the main villain, the main protagonist, he plays this kind of wicked Roman general, uh, is actually the actor who played the governor in The Walking Dead. I didn't realize it at first. I'm like, that guy looks familiar. Um, so that's pretty cool. And one thing I found jarring at first, but it grew on me, is 
So it's set in this ancient pagan land, maybe a fantasy-based version of an ancient pagan land, you know what I mean? But still, you get the feeling that you're in this ancient environment. And yet, uh, they play 60s rock music, like I think British rock music. They play a lot of Donovan, and I actually love Donovan. The first season, her, the Hurdy Gurdy Man, Hurdy Gurdy Man was the theme song to the show, and I love that song. And then this, uh, the second season is uh, The Season of the Witch by Donovan is the uh, theme song. I absolutely love that song too. So they play a lot of like British rock from like the 60s in the show. Like I said, it was jarring at first, but then I thought it was cool. I kind of liked the juxtaposition. And even the intro to the show has kind of like a psychedelic vibe. And I should clarify something. I say it takes place in ancient um, pre-Roman Britain. And in a sense, yeah, but it actually takes place right during the beginning of the Roman invasion of ancient Britain. So I think that would be around 43 AD or Common Era. Yeah, so I think it takes place roughly like 10 years after the crucifixion because in the second season, they start to weave in um, like Christian elements. Like we find out that one of the Roman soldiers was actually, I think traditionally his name is Longinus, right? The guy who, in um, according to the folklore tradition, um, the Roman soldier who spares Christ with what would become known as the Spear of Destiny. And also Josephus is in it. So pretty wild, but it's kind of a fun ride. All right. Anyway, I'm getting tired and I think you guys probably had enough of me for the week. So thanks everyone. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page, can Follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm not there much. Uh, you can watch the YouTube ch uh, version of the show. Um, and if you want to support the show monetarily, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash doubt and supporting what I do here for, for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time. <laughs>